You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. All right, so we got another interview today, having a friend on today who knows something about interpreting mythology. Yeah, that me and Sean are uh, trying some new episode formats. And so today I'm going to be talking about the poem Volspa from the Poetic Edda with Ashley McKenna. So Ashley, I wanted to introduce you to the podcast uh, audience that, well, actually I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit um, that you, you know, that you've studied psychology like I have. So that's certainly why I wanted to have you on. Anything else you wanted to mention about yourself and, and just uh, what, uh, especially related to mythology, what you know about mythology. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on David and mythology is really an exciting topic. Um, yes, I actually studied psychology at uh, Ball State University and got a bachelor's in human development across the lifetime. And that is something that has helped me so much and that I think about every day. Um, But after that, I actually moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, coming from Indiana. I had no idea uh, anything about Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, And I moved there and it was a good bit of a culture shock. When I moved there, I enrolled in a program and a school, Southwestern College, and they specialize in transformational psychology. Um, What that means to this day, I still don't know that I exactly know. Trying to to transform a person or help a person to transform themselves. But then what does that mean too? Yeah. It's a hard thing to nail down because I, I feel like what, how do, how do you define um, how you help someone transform? And so that's something I'm always interested in, but to be honest with you, it was a huge culture shock. I went from a very um, clinical uh, research-based environment at Ball State. Most of my professors were published with the APA to the south side of Santa Fe, where there were goats grazing in the lawn. Um, We were studying Carl Jung and, you know, we were saging in and out of every class. bowing, meditating, studying on pillows. Um, It really ran the gamut of an experience. So I think it really set me up to check in with different archetypes and mythology and how we connect to all of these stories and really honoring the stories of our past, um, whether they were in truth or in fable, just to, to learn from that legacy um, and maybe things that were lost. So that's, that's how I, like I put it. that into my therapy practice. Oh yeah. And that's why I really wanted to have you on. Cause yeah, for, for my background, it's similarly you know, on the East coast, very scientific kind of approach to psychology, but then I moved all the way out here to New Mexico and it's kind of a culture shock, but then I was in the a more clinical program where it was still, if things don't have statistical significance, it's not truth. And as you're talking about these things, yeah, actually learning about Carl Jung in you know, your grad school, I didn't learn any of that. I'm just teaching myself that, you know, on the fly the last few years, right? So how you might interpret these might be quite different for me as you learned in school, how to yeah, find the wisdom and traditions, right? Things like that. Mm-hmm. And our school had a huge emph- emphasis on qualitative psychology and really being able to put language and um, validity to an experience 
And, and that came out in the bizarrest forms, you know, where we would have to listen to a song and then write out the emotional experience in a very specific way. So someone else could then read that, um, and know what you were experiencing. And, you know, um, just in that case, music makes us feel so many different things. So, um, it's an art form. No, and then sometimes, you know, that, that idea like a, a metaphor or kind of like a poem or a song, right? A, a metaphor might explain something better than what you can put it into words. But that's how do you measure that, right? So that's not within my, you know, training, right? But that's still very much this kind of truth that me and Sean will talk about as well in the podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that is really, I would say, the core of how I do therapy. I never unless someone is in, you know, a place of, of safety, I never plan a therapy session. I don't have any pre-written agendas. If somebody comes in and they're focused on these ideas or images, that is where we go with to truly kind of validate their experience. And a lot of the times when people are talking, I'm just listening. And what I do is reflect back you know, um, one of my favorite kind of analogies is, you know, it's really like a cat's making bread, this idea. And I'm not a cat person, but it's this idea that comes up how they kind of play on you and they push back and forth. And that idea comes up a lot in therapy where someone wants to make a change and then they pull back and then they push forward and then they pull back. I think that's the transformation, Um, right? What, What does transformation take? Maybe it's exactly that, right? Yeah. So a lot of imagery, um, you know, if I'm listening to someone talk, you know, like I'm listening to you talk and I'm just seeing a wild horse running, you know, things like that. That's a lot of the archetypes, a lot of the bringing the Carl Jung um, into play in therapy sessions. Yeah. The stuff that I, you know, focus on more in my work is very much like the mindfulness and non-judgment, right? And that's, as you're talking about listening, right? You have to really listen in that very non-mental way. And it's, you know, things today as we look at the, the myth and the poem to not judge it, right? To look at it and be like, is this true? Is this not true? Does this make sense? Is it silly? Is it dumb? Those are all not helpful judgments to really see what it's actually saying is to just yeah, sit with it, to listen. Yeah. And to ponder. Yeah. That's the huge things about these myths or the connections with gods. It's really, what does that story say? And what is the meaning on me? And how does that help inform the way that I live my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else from, you know, maybe is helpful for our audience to know that about things like, you said you maybe had a little bit in your education, actually they talked about mythology or you said something history of origin stories were an interest for you. And then, but also that idea with the archetypes would be helpful for our audience to understand from your perspective. You know, I think all of the origin stories no matter what culture or what part of the world really just have this level of connectivity to source that something happened here. There was some moment where this all began and it's different for everyone. And I think that is so beautiful. I love hearing different origin stories and And I think the key, you know, doing this work and and doing some studying with different cultures, um, I spent some time in South America with the Caro shamans and learning their culture. What I really 
came to understand is that everyone's, and this may not be exactly the question you asked, but everyone's origin story is completely valid and it's theirs, right? Like, I think there's a clear connection with North mythology when it comes to a lot of different um, cultures or races or different um, people who've, you know, came, came to America, really connecting back to that Central European um, root. You know, I have a very strong connection um, to my own family's origin story. And, and I wasn't even going to talk about this. Um, coming to America, my family was the original Quakers. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that's just an origin story in itself. The idea yeah. that they came and that they were nonviolent yeah. and they chose nonviolence in this way above their religious pursuit or sovereignty, you know, they were ex- escaping, yeah. but these ideas that we carry these legacies with us, I just think are so important and so valid and whatever any person feels connected to is their truth. Like I really connect into the old European Norse, you know, the idea of the woodland fairies and, and this, it's just, it's something within me that didn't come from anywhere. It just, it's within me. The ideas as um, me and Sean talk about it. It's one of the interesting things about the, the Norse mythology. It was a very, they didn't convert to Christianity until very late. So they have that old, really traditional or archaic might be a word to say it traditions but it was still happening by even the year 1200, yeah, um, that we connect to these ideas. You're mentioning that you've, you've met shamans before. Like, at least my understanding of it is like shamans really work within a culture, that the stories is how they do their work. Is that pretty accurate from what I've been reading? Yeah, so the Karen shamans, Karo shamans, they are very connected to the land. Like mm-hmm. everything that they do honors um, the mother, in their process and the mother earth and they don't do they don't eat they don't move they don't do anything without prayer and honoring and a great reverence for ceremony every there's a ceremony for everything and i think you know in this very i don't know what the word is for these days our society but the way things are now we've lost touch with the origin story, with who we are and why we came here and these stories that help us, like the story of Loki, right? Like that's a story too, that keeps people in check, you know, like don't be the mischievous one. You know, that's a story we want to tell the kids and to have them learn, but we've lost that connection to these stories of our past and to how to be in the world. So I think that the shamans that, that I, you know, I don't even want to say learn from because I don't practice. If you're um, in a culture, right. Yeah. You, you, it's hard to become part of a culture that's not yours, but then we live in a society right now where we don't have much of a culture. So we're trying to figure out something we can, can gain from them, right. And learn from them. Yeah. Right. I felt like I witnessed a part of their culture and a few things um, I have brought into my own, but, but really tapping that in, inner source of w- what is my own cre- creation story. 
but it's awesome to really experience somebody else when they believe in something so true. That's the gift is watching someone else have a culture that is deep and rich and meaningful. um, And then getting to find your own piece of that. You you know, I was just talking to Sean in the last episode about um, he brought this idea of like submitting to a higher power. And how do you make sense of that if you don't believe in God, right? What do you, what do you do? But I've been think, reading about this idea of finding the, the center or something that's a center and outside of yourself. So you're not this center. You're not, you know, too full of yourself, right? But something else is, you're talk, talking about with that, like, the, you know, I'm sure so many families, the immigration story, right? And that, you know, that is the Statue of Liberty. If you came into um, Ellis Island, that's the new center. We have a new start, right? And that's, that's the center. Or you get a home finally. And now this is the center, right? Something, yeah. something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's start let's start a myth. So I I, I think this is a. I mean, Sean. Also, we're just talking about over over preparing, over planning. I'm like, Sean, we don't have to over plan. We don't have to over prepare. Let's start reading a myth and see where it takes us. Right. So. Carl Jung would not over plan or prepare. Yeah. It would just yeah. go naturally where it needs to go. Yeah, and, and also with the, the Norse, I, I sent you this myth that after after I look at it, I'm like, it's so unfair because I've been reading this stuff for six months. I look. At, I got these encyclopedias of how you mythological terms in Norse mythology. It's like, you can't just put up a meme a while back. You know, one does not simply read Norse mythology because you have to know what all these words mean. There's, yeah, we'll, we'll come upon things where I'll let you know what, because uh, even if you know, you know, you know, the gods, you know, the characters, the language is so difficult. It's a, uh, it's not easy. Well, but, and it has a feeling too. Like that's yeah. where I tried to go with the things that I didn't know. Like, yeah. what is this phrase making me feel and how do I interpret that? Let me, let me read the first few stanzas of Bolspa, and then we'll talk a little bit about what you, yeah, what you, what you took away from it. Yeah. So it says, hearing I ask from the holy races, from Heimdall's sons, both high and low, uh, thou wilt, all father, that well I relate, old tales I remember of men long ago. I remember yet the giants of yore who gave me bread in the days gone by. Nine worlds I knew, the nine in the tree with mighty roots beneath the mold. Of old was the age when Ymir lived. Sea nor cool waves nor sand were there. Earth had not been, nor heaven above, but a yawning gap and grass nowhere. What are your thoughts, Ashley, either on that one or things from when you had started reading this before? Yeah. The poem is really trying to convey this place of knowingness, right? <laughs> before the earth, in between heaven and earth is really consciousness you know that we can be present in and this is a lot of stories tell us to try to learn um you know buddhism and learning to be in the moment and that there is a place where you can find information and i also it seems as though there's some level of sorrow that something is lost that we're talking about the days of that you know and i'm not sure what that means for right now um being in this time you know hopefully the days that we're headed towards and i still have a deep um maybe somewhat magical hope that we're still moving towards this aquarian time aquarius time of peace where we finally get it but in in the origin of that poem it does seem like there's a bit of sorrow and lost that 
that that was had and then it went away. Maybe that's that thought, right? Why look to the history when you want the future to be better? It's to see, was there something there that we can bring out? The way I take it too is that emptiness, right? Is that out of the unconscious, then consciousness shows up. Is that how you take it as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, and let me go to the next part. So this one, it says Burr's sons. So just to, if you haven't been following all our stuff, that's um, Odin's father is Burr and Odin and his two brothers basically are the ones involved here. And this whole story is Odin's talking to a seeress, asking her to tell him things he doesn't know, even though he's kind of the king of the gods. He doesn't know everything. He wants to know everything. So he's gone to this woman in the underworld, basically, to tell me, what, what do I need to know? But so it says, then Burr's sons lifted the level land, Midgard the mighty they made. The sun from the south warmed the stones of the earth, and green was the ground with growing leeks. The sun, the sister of the moon from the south, her right hand cast over heaven's realm. No knowledge she had where her home should be. The moon knew not what might was his. The stars knew not where their stations were. What are your thoughts on that? You know, it's hard. And I, and I preface these things again as I, I just, I was born seeing the possibility. And I was born just with, I don't even know how to stop it sometimes, this optimism that in this poem, in creation, and honestly, the way that this world was created was perfect. And it's really just us that keeps on messing it up. Like, how is it that your body works every day to heal itself, that the earth works every day to heal itself and every little turn of the knob works perfectly together to make this whole thing tick. If that's not a creation story within itself, like that's where I go to instantly that there was this perfection in creation. Now I know not every creation story, there is a lot of tragedy um, and trauma in a lot of different creation stories, but especially in the Norse, there is this idea of beauty and harmony and perfection. Like something started that was right. Even if maybe trauma comes in later, something started and it was something very right about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Just as we're talking, I'm thinking kind of that, that mindfulness and non-striving idea that, like you said, the the earth just was, it it came to be, right? These things came together and it was good. And why, you know, as humans, we're always striving for something. We're always trying to make it better. We need to change this. We can't be happy with just, this this is all pretty good, actually, if this uh, creation story is describing it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why can't we just let things be? Then sought the gods, their assembly seats, the holy ones and council held, names then they gave to noon and twilight, morning they named and the waning moon, night and evening, the years to number. At Ithaval, which is called the, the field of deeds, met the mighty gods, shrines and temples they timbered high, forges they set and they smithed ore, tongs they wrought and tools they finished. In their dwellings at peace, they played at tables. Of gold, no lack, did the gods then know, till thither came up giant maids there, huge of might out of Jotunheim. The Jotunheim is the land of the giants. So it's that the three giant women arrived. So it's kind of describing the world before that. Right. And it doesn't seem like that world continues from what I've read. 
moving forward in the poem. And so that's just, that's the piece of it that everyone had exactly what they needed and they were able to consult the gods with their wisdom, live in harmony and peace. Um, And then the idea of the giants, right? Really coming in and causing chaos. And it does seem like that there is always some barrier that comes forth or some almost villain that comes in a way to challenge things it's just just, just, as as i'm i'm hearing the way you you see this story that reminds me of a garden of eden right yeah things were perfect they had everything they needed there were table games having a great time and then something happened right and that yeah the giants are often the forces of chaos and destruction but interesting one, I'm curious your thoughts. Potentially the three giant maids could actually be the Norns who determine your fate so that everything was just happening, but now fate has showed up. Your fate is being determined. Uh, what is your thought? Is that, that kind of interpretation that, that might be a reading of it? Yeah. Well, a predetermined fate. I mean, that really throws a wrench in everything. Yeah. Um, that if that really is the way that things are working, then, then we don't have a lot of control. And even this idea that, and, you know, everything that Thor kind of in, in today's modern idea of Thor, um, he absolutely challenges that and says, I will not, I will be the creator of my own fate and I will be able to do these things. And so, the challenging of that, but I think that's really hard, even in the idea of, you know, reincarnation and that, you know, what um, the Tibetan Book of the Dead really says is that we are all working through these evolutions to be able to attain a certain thing. And if our fates are predetermined or judged, that makes things really difficult. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. Yeah, with, uh, Sean always makes fun of me because I'm not always as uh, up to speed on the Marvel universe as I should be. With Thor and the modern ones, when he tries to defy his fate, set his own path, does it end up bringing him back to his fate anyways, would you say? That is a really good question. I will have to tell you, I never thought I would be a fan of uh, the multiverse until I had a little boy who is now 10 who asked me questions. So I've had to dig into every nuance of marvel to understand um everyone's origin story you know that's a really good question i think he gets really challenged and his belief is broken and especially fighting thanos um you know he's not the all-powerful um that really saves the day and i think that's hard and uh you know spoiler in the next movie i think he's learning who he is in a very developmental almost adolescent task uh, is is his next movie the the hero the hero archetype is quite the the adolescent archetype right so that's let's see and then the next so the next part the the gods are taking their seats but i'll I'll skip a little bit of this because it's talking about the uh the race of dwarves. It was interesting. I said the gods were smithing before, but usually the dwarves are known as the smiths. Um, yeah. Some very fun things here. If you know Lord of the Rings at all, some of the dwarves are Durin. There's Biffer, Boffer, Bomber. Where is the other ones? Uh, Thrain, Thoror, Philly, Killy, and let's see if there's another one I recognize. Oh, and Gandalf. 
of course. <laughs> Did you ever, or, I love that was his source for the Hobbits, uh, the dwarves and the Hobbits? I love Lord of the Rings. And there probably isn't a few days that go by, just on a side note, that I don't sit with inside of myself in dark moments. And the answer to the dark moments within my life is look to the mountain on the third day at sunrise. And it almost makes me cry even saying it right now, because it's that moment, the belief in everything where, you know, they thought Mordor was going to win and they were being overtaken. And just this moment when all is lost, you know, look to the mountain on the third day at sunbreak. And there is Gandalf. And I just, that, like, that takes up a significant amount of my thought and cognition because that's how I cope with the hard things in this world. And it's like, oh my God, another tragedy that we're faced in today's society. It's, it's that story that helps me through. Thank goodness it was written because I know it's given so much hope to so many people. And, and that's my thought is that, yeah, why, like why have optimism, right? But then it's, it's going to look impossible. That's exactly the point. It looks completely impossible. And then you still have to, right? Because what else can you do? And over, like sometimes it seems like it's done. It's yeah. finished. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then this moment, just this little spark of hope comes in yeah. and creates a different story. Yeah. I'm looking here to see what they, they, they just give a list of, of uh, names of dwarves, which is one of my favorite things about this part of the poem, but I won't read through the entire thing. Where do they, where do they wrap it up or how do they tie it all in? It says the, the list I must tell the names of the dwarves, the rocks they left uh, through wetlands. They sought a home in the fields of sand. Uh, so that's interesting too. Yeah. The dwarves are looking for a home as well. Once they've been, I guess, created or yeah. Yeah, and the reference to the sand before that the the time before had no sand. You know, yeah. that wasn't I don't know the true meaning of sand in Norse history, but it seems significant. No, I think it's yeah, that they were, you know, so t- tied to the water, right? And to, to find the shoreline, right? And that to be floating adrift without that. If you really just think about being on a little boat, right, and and out in the ocean and just how powerless that feels. It's an image I've seen a few times in this learning about Vikings, I'm like, that gives you, goes back to that idea of uh, something being greater, greater than yourself, right? To be middle of the ocean and it's just you and six guys and you're on a boat and that's nothing. Yeah, else. absolutely. That awe, the feeling of awe yeah. that it's powerless and completely powerful yeah. at the same time. That there's something that's powerful, right? Yeah. And that's, and you're connected to how powerful something is, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah, so after they talk about the dwarves, now it's beginning to talk about the origin of of human beings. It says, then from the throne did there come forth, from the home of the gods, the mighty and gracious, two without fate, on the land they found, Ask and Embla, empty of might. Soul they had not, sense they had not, heat nor motion, nor goodly hue. Soul gave by Odin, sense gave by Honir. Heat gave by Lothar and goodly hue. Actually, what were thoughts there? So that's there, yeah, creating them, creating man from Ask and Embla or the Ash and the Elm tree, yeah. man and woman. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if I'm interpreting this right because it does seem a little conflictual. And like the, the first verse, it's really saying that they're born 
you know, of the gods without fate. And, you know, that is a really a, a beautiful idea to sit with. The second soul they had not, since they had not. Um, Until you know, that, Odin gave them one. Odin put soul into them. Okay, that's the next piece. Yeah. Soul gave Odin. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, that is a really that's a really wonderful thing and, and a great idea for all of us all to sit and interpret now, like this idea that we can connect to our own souls. Like that's yeah. really, and that's really a huge piece of transformational psychology. How do you help someone live a life from their soul yeah. versus this very, um, draconian I guess, way of living or meeting these societal ideals that people feel like they should be a certain way creating so much shame in our day-to-day experience you should be this way you should fit in this box this idea of living in this 1950s leave it to beaver about uh, albert ellis is uh, who says should that's one of his quotes (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And so the soul has no space for that because the soul just is right. The soul expresses and collects different experiences. And so the sense they had not too, like they're gaining this idea of how to be in the world in this level of creation connect to their five senses, right? That's what it registers for me is being mindful, right? That comes from, from Honir, one of, I think, Odin's brothers. And then, and then heat is kind of their heart, right? That's, it's, it's separate from the soul, but it's, uh, it's how I take it. Yeah. Absolutely. That, uh, that the, that my understanding of the shaman is all about helping a person. They, they've experienced soul loss and the shaman, one of the things he can do is help them reconnect to the soul, right? So that, and that's, it completely connects with uh, other stories where Odin is very much a shamanic figure. We and Sean go through that. Absolutely. And that this is the idea of the shaman or the healer, like these ideas are interchangeable. And I hold that, you know, that's a huge part of the transformational education that I got in Santa Fe that yes, I am a therapist and I am bound by all great and wonderful ethical guidelines and standards of practice. And I adore them, but that I am also a healer and that it's my duty to help heal broken um, places within someone. And, you know, having this, this sense um, within therapy that I can see the wounds within people um, that, that is more of a, I won't say magical, but maybe somatic and or energetic level that I can see what needs to be tilted or turned or addressed yeah. within someone to help them get back to that cohesion of self. That's what I was going to um, ask, but I think maybe you kind of answered it there, that idea of the soul loss or the way from some of the Jungian ideas, right? I, like, I really like this concept, the structure of the soul, but it's like aligning things, right? It's connecting to it. Uh, something you just said there really yeah, registered for me on that. It's really interesting. I I hadn't thought about this story in years, but you might find it interesting. Um, I actually did a soul retrieval one time in Santa Fe and it was 
uh, a very uh, prolific and interesting and somewhat overwhelming experience all at the same time. I hadn't been feeling well and there was nothing specifically going on in my life. Um, So it's this idea to pay attention to all the things that are happening. And I just couldn't get back to myself. Those are huge words. You know, I just, why isn't this working? And so I went to this woman and I walked into the room in her house in Santa Fe and and it was bougie up by the mountain, you know, classic Santa Fe style. And within one second, of me walking in the door. She like, it makes me cry a little because I get emotional. It was a big experience. I walked through the door and she grabbed this drum that was probably three feet in diameter, this hand drum and this mallet. And she just yelled, the witch is behind you. And I went, oh God, you know, like, what do you say when someone yells, there's a witch standing behind you? It doesn't seem right. And I was young. I was like 20, 24. And so I just said, oh my God. And she said, lay down. And she, I don't know the true validity of this experience. I don't know. It seemed very true within my heart and my experience. She went to battle like a full battle. She was drumming and war crying and fighting this energetic presence that was around me. And I was like, get her, you know, what do you do when you're sitting there when I don't see a witch? Yeah. That's amazing. You had that experience. And cause I've I've heard of those things that that's, yeah, like a person can't always battle it for themselves. The, The shaman has to go in there and do it themselves. Right. And it's funny because you're laughing too, right? Because the, the, the phrasing is so strange, you know, me growing up, not in any of that kind of context and culture and things that, as I told Sean before, I'm like, you know, if, you, if you've lost your soul, that seems like a big problem. It's a bad thing. But then like, where did it go? And that's, you know, just kind of wrapping our minds around it. But um, yeah. Yes. And, and the key in it for me, and there was one under, uh, other interesting thing I want to share just for people out there to pay yeah. attention to. Um, I felt instantly better. I, do I know? if this woman, you know, uh, took $200 from me, you know, and it was a made up experience. But what I know is I wasn't well. And then I went to this healer and I was well, interestingly enough, what the other energetic thing was, and I think this is great with language. I had knives literally stuck in my back that she had pulled out. She said, you have knives and you have blocks people have done harm to you. And like, there was a, like a, she put it as like almost uh, like an onyx arrowhead, like jammed into my neck. And so she had to remove all of these energetic blocks. Um, And, and I had, I felt so much better. I've never felt that sick or lost. Um, This is you're telling me this. It's actually, I'm interpreting the myth differently now. Just the next line. It says, an ash I knew, Yggdrasil was its name, with water white is the great tree wet. Thence comes the dew, the fall in the dales, green by earth's well, does it ever grow? We were just talking about the ash and Embla are the two people, right? The first two people. Mm-hmm. And then it says, what? I know an ash, its name is Yggdrasil, which is the world tree, right? That idea that the person is the representation of the world tree, right? And you're saying there's, where is the soul? It's on somewhere in the world tree, the nine realms, you're saying there's these blocks, the, the, the tree looks like your spine, your nervous system, right? And you're talking about these blocks mm-hmm. neck that now you can travel the world tree. Because, you know, my 
using this language to like how I make sense of what you just told me. Yeah. Yeah. And that there has to be a connectivity and a flow for harmony, yeah. right? That even in the nine realms, yeah. you know, like what Thor is fighting for is balance. Yeah. And when something is left untended, it falls out of balance, you know, and, and I know this, this comes from the, the Marvel universe, but when Loki's left in charge and he's disguising, yeah. disguising himself as Odin, the nine realms fall apart yeah. and Thor has to leave the story for so long to be able to put things back together again. That's the idea that without the harmony, when we lose some aspect of ourselves, we have to be fully integrated. The nine realms yeah. have to be in alignment to yeah. be able to be okay. One of the things I really liked is I looked at a couple of books, especially a Gene Shinoda Bolin's book on uh, on the the Ring Saga, but it's based on these same Norse gods. Um, really made sense to me the idea. So yeah, like you said, you know, you don't want Loki in Asgard in your kind of ruling faculty of your mind. You want Thor in Jotunheim battling chaos. That's probably where Thor should be, right? And one of the other realms where the dwarves are, never go with the names. In any case, though, where the where the dwarves live is really about resentment. The dwarves are angry, they're resentful, they have to be kept underground. And something's needed there. Uh, I think it's probably the lover, or love is needed, but, uh, which god or goddess that is, right? That's one. Actually, the dwarves are usually trying to get Freya there, so that would make sense why they want her there. But uh, the gods don't want to let her go, so that's <laughs> interesting. And then they can't have this bigger level of healing Everybody has to get their needs met in the ultimate, you know, story of peace or the utopia that we're looking for that doesn't happen until everyone's needs are met in these journeys. Let's move on. This is where it connects the the seeress. I think the seeress has been telling us the whole time, but this is where she kind of starts communicating with Odin a bit. It says, uh, the war I remember, the first in the world. When the gods with spears had smitten Golveg, and in the hall of Hor had burned her, three times burned, and three times born, oft again, and yet ever she lives. Hythe they named her, who sought their home, the wide-seeing witch, in magic wise. Minds she bewitched that were moved by her magic, the evil woman, a joy she was. Or the evil woman, a joy she was, sorry. But that's it's a little bit to know is that there's another story about the war of the gods. And that's when Freya and her brother and her father come and join the, uh, the Aesir, the main gods. Basically, that they were a warring tribe. They do this hostage exchange. So that actually probably had a queen who was Freya's mother. But they sent Freya to be the hostage to live with them, basically to keep the peace. And that she's you know, a powerful sorceress. Whether she is the one we're talking to and later in the poem is kind of like, seems like they're different, but sometimes mythology, they're, they're the same and they're different, I would think. What are your thoughts uh, there? Well, it's funny that that story I hadn't thought about in years about uh, the soul retrieval and the witch came into yeah. play when this, you know, Carl Jung doesn't talk um, in his archetypes about a witch, but it, it is an archetype within itself. It's yeah. the one who takes to get her needs met or, yeah. or his needs met. It, yeah. It's, you know, not gender specific, but yeah. this idea that they always have to take yeah. from someone else and they can't find it within themselves. And so that 
continues to cause harm, right? Like even that, that we're moved by her magic. Like it's not because people are making their own choices. It's because they're manipulated. And that's where it's a little bit then like the trickster, like Loki, like. And And look at Loki. He's always just like, what's that person doing? I'm going to take what they have. What can I get out of this situation? Absolutely. It's interesting. Uh, Tony Wolf, who was a contemporary of Young, she talked about the seeress as one of the archetypes of uh, in the in the feminine structure of the, the woman's soul. And there's other ones who talk more on the masculine soul kind of structure. But yeah, no, mm-hmm. I like it. That as you were saying that you hadn't thought about your story for a while, and then it's showing up in the myth, right? That this is the, this is what people this is the experience. This is the human experience, right? And it's just, do you have these labels to put on it? Maybe other people try to make sense of it other ways, right? Makes sense to me. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And it makes me think of, you know, the sirens and Ulysses like journey and how, you know, the sirens really have the power of manipulation to be able to move things in the way that they want and how you really have to see through that. It's kind of just talking about how they settled that war between the, the Aesir and the Vanir. It says, then sought the gods their assembly seats, the holy ones the council held to find who with venom the air had filled or had given oaths bride to the giant's brood. In swelling rage then rose up Thor. Seldom he sits when he hears such things and the oaths were broken, the words and bonds, the mighty pledges between them made. I know of the horn of Heimdall hidden under the high reaching holy tree. On it there pours from all father's pledge, a mighty stream. Would you know more yet? So this is where Odin keeps asking about the future now. And she keeps ending it with, do you really want to know more? Because uh, the, the different versions, they translate it a little differently. But uh, yeah, that would you know more? Anything that stands out to you there? I mean, mostly like I, I absolutely like if I had to have like a light figure or someone that I look to, I mean, I definitely love Thor. Yeah. And you know, just the idea that now he's hearing these things and he, he can't, he cannot be okay with it. Yeah. And, and especially know, something that it was a betrayal. Yeah. As I'm, you know, it's hard to really parse the words, but there's some kind of a betrayal and he's like, he cannot abide. Like he is the, the keeper of good and justice and no matter what fear or what you know, what problem or major barrier there is in front of him, he will succeed and he will stand up for truth and he won't look away. And God, I just love that. And we need more of that in the world, you know? It's it's interesting, you know, in in some of the the myths, I think Loki does become, this is going to be our season two is um, Sean's quote is a Loki, um, the cause of, and the solutions to all life's problems. Because yeah. uh, the Thor, he, he's never afraid, right? But he approaches these things, but maybe sometimes he should be a little more afraid, right? And he said he never fails to stand up to the problem, but maybe sometimes like should take a little, slow it down a little bit, right? And that maybe actually Loki somehow, seems like Loki's sabotaging him, but maybe helping Thor to not be so, so Thor, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. In in the Marvel verse, he, he didn't save the day. It was Iron Man, you know? Yeah. Um, he, he wasn't able to defeat Thanos and that really crushed him in a way that where Marvel takes the story it is good for his character development, yeah. you yeah. know, um, then he gets to come through and be this 
completely new person because he didn't save the day. Yeah. Um, and the guilt and the shame and then the addiction. And the, he becomes and a little the, more human than right? He needs others. Finally, he thought he could do it all on his own, but oh, actually he does need others, yeah. Well, and he goes into a fear, a full place of chaos and despair. And so, yeah, absolutely. Because when you have an idea like that, that good no matter what, and that's your belief in life, and then it is crushed, that breaks your entire psyche apart. That's something that, that might be, that the idea of betrayal, I think, really ties into that, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Does that to people, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Let's see the next one. Alone I sat when the old one sought me, the terror of gods, and gazed in mine eyes. What hast thou to ask? Why comest thou hither? Odin, I know, where thine eye is hidden. I know where Odin's eye is hidden, deep in the well-famed well of Mimir. Mead from the pledge of Odin each morn. Does Mimir drink? Would you know yet more? So this is the part we talked about where Odin sacrifices his eye to gain a greater wisdom. That he, you know, learning more than what he knew before. Kind of like you were just saying with Thor being broken down and built back up. And that out of his sacrifices, how he, the, the well of Mimir, Mimir is kind of his, uh, sort of like his stepfather, but kind of like a, grand, a wise sage grandfather that teaches him a bit what he needs to do once he's no longer all powerful. Well, in that everyone has a shadow and a blind spot, you know, and the fact that he's a ruler that can acknowledge that makes him so great. This was where I think I was going to leave off here because this is part, sort of where also Sean and I have gone up to that after this is where it's Odin learning too much, that the things he, di- he didn't actually want to know, right? That's where she kept saying, do you want to know more? There's, there's this interesting line where they, they say half of it's, or part, one of the lines is lost, but it's uh, necklaces had I and rings from here father. Wise was my speech and magic my wisdom. Widely I saw over all the worlds. There's one line before that missing, but who's speaking, right? Is that the seeress? Is that Odin getting to see over all the worlds? But I kind of think that there's something there. He knew it all, but maybe then he wasn't happy with that either. Absolutely. Sometimes denial is our savior. When the world gets to be too much, I... You know, I always, I don't know why, but I think when I set a boundary and it's strong, I think of like lockdown at San Quentin. It's like all the doors just boop. Everyone's on lockdown. Not that I'm have spent time in prison in any way, but it's this imagery within my mind. And sometimes with everything that is going on, you just can't take it. And it seems like he got to a point with where just like we all, you know, anyone who's a parent and creating children, sometimes things happen that you just don't want to see and or acknowledge. Yeah. You know, one of the things with um, one of the authors, I really like Robert Moore or um, are you familiar with the young no. analyst author. He, he talks a lot about the shadow and that part of there's parts of it. You want to integrate, you want to bring in there's parts you don't want to bring in. You want to leave them there. It's sort of the, he says that's the archetypal shadow. It's things that are demonic. You don't you don't go there, right? And mess with that. That Odin spends a lot of time in the underworld with the shadow. And does he start to become actually a shadow figure rather than just a person integrating their shadow? I think is probably something about Odin with that. Absolutely. It's really hard to dip your toe in that water and come back into a place of hope and love and wellness. I think that's having a guide, right? That's yeah, but. 
Odin, Mimir is kind of his guide, but I don't know if Odin uh, goes back to submitting to a higher power, right? If Odin is the all-father, the, the king of all the gods, can he actually take direction, leadership from anybody else, right? Things like that. Ashley, do you have any other thoughts, anything else you wanted to mention or that all this got you thinking about Norse mythology, the things you, you know, connecting it to anything else that uh, you've, you've learned or you think our audience would uh, appreciate? Yeah. I just think it's, it's so good to learn through so story and really sit back like with the Lord of the Rings and take a moment to really, you know, you know, if you're going to have a Lord of the Rings marathon or, or read all the books of Shakespeare, you know, you go through this journey and every time you go through the journey of exploring, exploring this material, you gain something, you gain something that you needed. And sometimes we can't quite figure it out on our own, even in a blank space or a meditation. Sometimes we find wisdom there, but these stories teach us again and again, how to overcome and how to grow. And so I just love it. I think it's so amazing that you're exploring these things and helping to bring them back into the world. Because I know when I have personal growth moments, it's because I tapped back in to something, um, some story that made me feel a certain way and allowed me to take a step forward. Yeah, that's the thing I keep trying to, or I keep coming back to this idea as I talk about the mythology problems you can't logic your way out of, right? But that's some of these are the answers to the things that you can't logic your way out of. But there's there's an answer in there somewhere. It's hard to put it into words, even right. But the stories create the images. They create these things that that do that. Yeah. Thank you, Ashley. You have a great evening. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, David. You're welcome.